Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Welcome. Yeah, so what do, what do we got going on now? We're, we're back at the PCA. In a manner of speaking. So to speak. Yeah, right. So um, listeners, longtime listeners might remember a couple of years ago, we did a series from the PCA, which is the Pop Culture Association, a great conference every year, um, where we talked to some of the philosophers um, about what they're presenting at the conference this year. And um, we intended to do that last year as well, but... Um, you know, it, it got canceled due to COVID, and it's back this year, but it's a virtual conference. But that, um, we thought, um, you know, doesn't give us reason to not talk to the same folks. Um, cause there's same group of folks. Same group of folks, yeah. Because there's, yeah, actually not much overlap yeah. with the actual folks. Um, because there's lots of good stuff going on. Same type, different uh, token. Yeah, ooh. <laughs> Way to get all philosophical. <laughs> Um, my partner S here was was just fine. <laughs> stop fine S. Um, <laughs> if and only if, just stop. All right. So anyway, um, so this is the first of what I think will be four episodes, but it might be three, depending on how long the interviews go and how we end up carving them up, where we talk to folks about what they're doing for you know at this year's um, Pop Culture Association, and then hopefully um, next year we'll be back there in person. I. My intention is to go to this conference every year for the rest of my life, um, just because it's a hoot. It's a you know, great group of folks. Okay, so this week we um, are interviewing, or we have interviewed two folks, um, Professor uh, Jennifer McMahon and Professor Ed Cameron. So um, let's go to those interviews. Um, Rach, tell us a little bit about um, Dr. McMahon. Sure. Uh, Dr. Jennifer McMahon is a Professor of Philosophy and English at East Central University in Ada, Oklahoma. She has expertise in existentialism, aesthetics, comparative philosophy, visual rhetoric, mortality studies, and animal studies. She's published numerous essays on philosophy and popular culture, including ones in The Philosophy of Documentary Film, Buddhism in American Cinema, and Death in Classic and Contemporary Cinema. She's also edited collections including The Philosophy of Tim Burton and The Philosophy of the Western. Yeah, and she's been doing this for quite some time. She was in my um, very first philosophy and pop culture book, The Sopranos and Philosophy. So Great. Um, we go way back, but as you'll hear in the interview, we, we've never actually sort of met or talked other than email correspondence. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, let's let's go to the interview. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us today. Hello. Hi. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, nice to, to have you here. Um, so maybe we can start by having you tell us a little bit about what you're up to at the PCA this year. Well, this will actually be my my first time at the national conference, so it's exciting for me. Um, I've been I've spent a career um, doing pop culture uh, research, specifically the convergence of pop culture and philosophy. So I'll be bringing that interest to the conference this year, um, looking at the relationship between um, two maybe 
surprising works to conjoin. Um, Sartre's, Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, well-known play, No Exit, mm -hmm. and the, uh, I'd say, wildly popular online game Among Us. Um, they may seem to be strange bedfellows, um, but what I, the way I'm linking them is through an insight um, of Friedrich Nietzsche's uh, well-known existential philosopher, father of atheistic existentialism, um, his insight that humans really can't bear seeing existence in its full light, um, really seeing the truth in its unmitigated form. He asserts that if we were to do so, it might kill us. And so he argues that we need to temper our perception of truth um, in certain ways to make it bearable, to make it survivable. Um, and so in the paper, I'm arguing that both these works are telling us important truths about life, um, and they're doing so in ways that conceal the tr truth as well as reveal it at the same time, right? They're disclosing and disguising. Um, and so I'll, I'll take the opportunity at the conference to like walk us through um, what truths the play has to tell, how it's telling them and how it's disguising them. And similarly, how the um, game, while not as explicitly designed to tell certain existential truths, is nonetheless doing so, but doing so in a way that makes them bearable. Yeah. So I, I have this belief about um, people who listen to our podcast. And namely, it's they know exactly what I know. And and so I know no exit very well, but I don't know this game, despite the fact that it's wildly popular. Would you mind um, giving us the, the thumbnail sketch of the game? I did just Google it before our call, but... Um... Right, right. Um, well, and, I, and I'll confess, I'm not a um, active player. I'm an I'm active watcher of players. Uh, my two children, Gabrielle uh -huh. and Caleb, um, introduced me to the game quite unwittingly. In fact, um, it's, it had, it, I would say early last or late last spring, it had become a preoccupation of theirs. We're all living together in a small house in, in lockdown due to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, both doing, they're both doing school online, high mm -hmm. schoolers and, um, and they're close in age. So they often fight. Right. So, uh, I mean, they get along well as siblings go, but you know, teenage siblings are, are known to scrap with each other. And so I kept hearing, uh, especially when in close quarters, so I kept hearing lots and lots of laughter. And I was like, well, this is great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. us all closer together and we're getting along so well. And, but I finally was moved to ask them, you know, what are you, what are you guys laughing about? Cause they're all still yelling to each other. Send me the code, send me the code. And I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know what kind of code they're um, conveying back and forth. And so that prompted them to to say to show me the game, you know, come over and sit next to me on the couch and and show me the screen. And, and this is this game, mom. Everybody's playing this game. It's you know, it's called Among Us. And so the the premise of the game is that we have these little characters who are on a spacecraft, and that spacecraft um, it is it, it it needs repair. It needs to be fixed, right? Um, and so they're doing tasks to keep that you know, the spaceship going and, and get it back into its, its working order. Um, and, but on the, uh, on the craft are, um, uh, it, it, among these, among these uh, characters who are, um, I would, I've characterized them in another, another paper, a paper I gave at the, the Southwest uh, Popular Culture Conference back in February as being somewhat reminiscent of like Pac-Man 
characters. You know, they're very simplified, caricatured um, entities. They're they're not humanoid, um, except in the in the fact that they wear like little cute hats and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. um, but among these these characters are imposters, and these imposters are um, they can uh, vent through. Um, they have special powers in terms of getting access to locations that other characters don't. That's one way you can kind of uh, recognize an imposter is if you see them venting uh, through like flues in the walls. But they kill the regular characters, the crewmates. The regular characters are called crewmates. And so in the game, if the goal is to, obviously as most games win, the goal is to win. And if you are a crewmate, then your goal is to finish all the tasks needed to repair the spaceship um, and to do so before all of you die. <laughs> um, the goal of the imposter or imposters, sometimes there's more than one, is to kill everyone. Um, and so uh, what happens during the course of the game, because they all look alike, um, the, you know, the crewmates uh, don't know who the imposter is and they're trying to figure it out. So. Uh, alongside doing their tasks, like fixing electrical um, elements, they will call meetings to see if they can identify the imposter, trying to deduce the, the identity of the imposter by um, where they saw dead bodies, whether they saw someone venting, um, and they can vote people off that's kind of reminiscent of Survivor. They can vote people off the ship, right? They call an emergency meeting, try to discern who the imposter is. And if they come to agreement, then they might vote someone off. Nice. So, so it's Turing test meets Survivor at, at this point. Yes, so yes, yeah. Exactly. Great, great. So I don't know if that kind of gives you a sense of the game that you might not have had before. Um, but there's, you know, there's a communal aspect um, in terms of conferring with one another. So there's, it's highly social, um, but there's also a lot of deception going on. Um, I actually had my students in my philosophy class this semester analyze the game in terms of Thomas Hobbes philosophy and, and looking at it as um, a, a, like a nasty, brutish and short um, mm -hmm. version of life. So. Oh, great. And it, you're, at the other conference you've recently gone to, you've connected this to Camus and, and the plague. Yeah, at that, at that conference, I connected it to the plague. Um, Camus' uh, well-known novel, The Plague. Um, again, I've taught Camus for, I've taught Camus generally, but this novel in particular for 20, 20 years. Um, and, and really never has that novel been so prescient as in my lifetime, <laughs> as this as this year with the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, what I found interestingly uh, enough was the, the way in which um, oftentimes I would bring this up with folks in conversation, you know, across Zoom and whatnot, um, and say, oh my gosh, you know, Camus is just, he's right on the money. He's talking yeah. about this, um, it has everything, the psychodynamics of our response to the pandemic. He, he, he said this all before. This is not, this is nothing new. And a lot of folks were not, um, they're like, oh, I don't want to talk about Camus now. I don't want to talk, huh? about, I don't want to talk about the plague because yeah. we're living it. And of course, that's absolutely true. It was, it was too close to the reality that, that we were and are experiencing for a lot of folks. And so that struck me as interesting um, because I saw among us as 
really embodying our situation too. Um, you know, it, it, it the, the nature of the game and the, the setting of the game, as I mentioned a moment ago, is that we have all these people confined to a ship, right? They can't get out. You know, you die if you're jettisoned into space. You know, you, you're not going to survive outside the context of the ship. And so we are find ourselves in that situation in the world. If you know, think about Heidegger's uh, assertion that we are fundamentally worldly beings. Mm-hmm. Um, we exist in the, and maybe we need to think a little bit more about that these days, mm-hmm. um, that we, we need this uh, big blue satellite. We need to be, this is where we exist. This is where we survive. Um, and you can't exist off of it. So you, there's this situation of confinement, confinement to a space, and at the same time, the recogni- recognition that this there's there's peril in this place too, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. There's danger, and in the case of the pandemic, the danger is comes in the form of of other people mm-hmm. as sources of contagion. As much as we need other people, we depend on them. We need our first uh, responders. We need our frontline workers. We need our essential workers. We absolutely can't make it without them. Uh, we need everybody to wear their mask and wash their hands and get vaccinated. Um, at the same time, those same entities, those same individuals, those same people, are the source of the contagion too. So they, ca- you know, they create anxiety, right? And mm-hmm. that anxiety is so clearly evident in the game among us. You know, it's the imposter. It's this other person who you don't, who, who who's whose intentions you can't see, um, mm-hmm. who represents the the danger to you. And yet at the same time, you rely on your crewmates to help you discern who that imposter is. So mm-hmm. it, it really um, illustrates both our dependence upon others, that's even more obvious in, the, in a case of a pandemic, and at the same time, the, the danger that others can represent. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really um illustrating that that existential truth and and the argument in that paper was that it's it's a truth that's and it really led me to this one this new one for the for pca for national um it it led me to this paper because it's showing among us is revealing truths in a fashion in a form that's not as realistic as the plague as camus novel and because it's not as realistic, it's more bearable. Interesting. So I, I, I was going to ask you a question that sort of ties all these strands together, um, in part because I'm really curious. So um, I'm teaching existentialism in the fall, and I always do The Stranger. And I was thinking, well, maybe I'll do The Plague this year. And I've been wondering, is it too soon, right, um, you know, for the, the reasons that you mentioned? Um, and I'm still sort of grappling with it, but I, I think maybe – you know, at least as my students seem to be coming out of things, maybe it's not, maybe it, this is the perfect time to reflect. But um, I was going to ask you, why are people wanting to play this game during this time? But the last thing you've said is that it, it does it in a more palatable way. So we were treated into video games during the pandemic, but it's been Animal Crossing. <laughs> For an hour a day, I just escape into this thing where everybody goes, la, 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 la. And it and it's been very good for me to, to take my mind off things. Um, but but you think there's a, a difference between the Among Us and you know reading something like the plague where the the message um, makes these same lessons um, 
tolerable when things are so terrible in some ways? Right. And at first, I would, I would, I'm going to backtrack just a tiny bit and say, I don't think it is too early. Um, I, I taught an introduction to literary study class this past fall. Um, so really in the thick of the <coughs> pandemic with all of the um, uncertainty uh, present, I mean, we now have a vaccine and it's, it's being deployed. So we, we are, in a, it, you know, psychologically in a, a very different place than uh, in September, October. Um, without that uh, light on the horizon, so to speak. Oh, good. Glad um, to hear that. I, um, I taught that. I taught the plague um, as as well as Poe's Mask of the Red Death, which is another plague um, mm -hmm. narrative, in this intro, intro to literary study class in the fall. And and they it was very well received by the students. Um, and and they actually uh, really took the opportunity that was present to draw parallels to our contemporary situations with the current COVID-19 pandemic. So that was very nice. Um, bet, in yeah. terms of your, your uh, question, you know, is, you know, what is it about among us that appeals to, to individuals when it is in fact foregrounding some, some difficult content, right? So the, the risk and danger uh, and that was actually a focus of, of the of the presentation as well in February. Um, I think it's because of this balance it strikes. Um, I use terror management theory, which is a contemporary um, uh, theory in, in social psychology that I draw a, a lot from in a lot of my research. Um, Sheldon Solomon, Jeff Greenberg are, are, are two um, well-known proponents of the theory. Can you give us the one-liner or the very short um, account of what that is, if there is one. Yeah, I would say that terror, terror management theory, it's also um, can go under the heading of mortality salience theory. Not that that helps unpack it necessarily. Um, <laughs> Which one's the euphemism there? <laughs> operates on the assumption that a lot of what we do in terms of our ideas, our conduct, our culture, is done in as a means to manage anxiety, mm, specifically mm -hmm. anxiety uh, with regards to our mortality. So yeah. that we structure a lot of our behavior, a lot of our beliefs in terms as narratives that are uh, narratives or behavior that's designed either to deny the reality of our death or to, um, create a narrative about it that makes death palatable, transfigures it in some way. So maybe it's not a terminal condition, it's a liminal condition where we transfer into a different state of being. Um, mm -hmm. Or it simply is uh, activity designed to defer our attention from death and thereby suppress our anxiety about it. So, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. um, so terror management theory would argue that our tendency to not talk about death it, the general cultural taboo against it. Um, that's simply designed to make it easier for us to manage everyday uh, exchanges by moving something out of conversation that causes anxiety and stress. Oh, okay, great, great. And so, uh, and I think you can kind of see that in the paper that I'm, you know, those those ideas and that that theory is really the architecture of the paper that I'm um, presenting in June. Good. Well, we're looking forward to that paper. 
Um, and then maybe um, just in wrapping things up, I should say on a personal note, it's great to sort of finally meet you, even though it's happening over Zoom, right? Our paths have crossed in several pop culture works um, going back many years. And if I think the first time might be in my Sopranos book um, in a I don't know, 2004 or something, but um... yeah, I think so. It's um, yeah, it's it's a pleasure to finally uh, see you, right? I don't think we've ever met no. in person, right? This and this is an odd sort of in person, but it's yeah, it's a delight. But it still feels like a meeting. Great. Well, wonderful to have you here, yeah. and we sure appreciate you taking the time to talk yeah, to us. Great insights. Thanks. You're yeah. very welcome. All right. Well, that was that was certainly awesome. Um, great interview. So next up, we have um, Ed Cameron. So do you want to tell us about, um, sure. about Ed? Ed Cameron is a professor of English and Film Studies in the Department of Literature and Cultural Studies at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. He teaches Intro to Film Studies and courses on Film Noir, David Lynch, Japanese Cinema, Film and Narrative, and Punk Cinema. He's published on Film Narrative, Film Noir, and on the films of David Lynch, Harmony Corinne, Federico Fellini, Steve McQueen, Todd Haynes, Jordan Peele, Jim, Jim Medliona, and Andre Tarkovsky. I gotta think he's got the coolest job ever. I like mine because I do all this fun philosophy and pop culture. But if it's just gonna be, you know, talking about gummo and um, eraser head all day, I will gladly swap jobs with this guy. <laughs> all right, so yeah, let's, let's go to the interview. Hi, Ed, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, so, thank you. Nice, nice to have you here. So, um, you're um, presenting at the PCA on nihilism and the, the films of Harmony Corinne. So um, that's that's interesting. Um, one of my favorite filmmakers. I, I always get in a little bit of trouble because I recommend Gummo to my students, and then they watch it, and then they, they come back and say, "What what have you done to me?" But uh, um, yeah, I I, I like um, his stuff a lot. So. Um, yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're you're talking about at the PCA? Yeah, sure. So um, I kind of, I started working on um, doing more research on nihilism, but last year I was working on a paper on uh, the horror films of Jordan Peele. You know, Get oh, Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are great. And yeah, so I sort of did an interpretation of them through the lens of black nihilism, um, which is. You know, um, something Calvin Warren wrote this really good book a few years ago called Ontological Terror. And it's all about uh, this Black nihilist movement. And I've read a couple of students' dissertations. And it's really interesting. And it was a really, uh, I thought, fruitful way to read Teal's uh, films. And I wrote an article published on it. So anyway, since I had been doing all this research on nihilism, and I had, I previously had published an article on Harmony Corinne uh, about four years ago on Spring Breakers, shortly after it came out. Mm -hmm. So I started pursuing this project. So this is just sort of the idea of, you know, when Janet Maslin originally reviewed Gummo in 97 and called it the worst film of the year, she said mm -hmm. that Corinne was a nihilist. And you know, as we also know, uh, when he first made that film, he couldn't, the, the MPA only gave it on. NC-17 rating yeah, yeah. Uh, because because it was nihilistic, right? That, that was their reason. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't like gratuitous violence or sex or right, language. That, it was nihilist. Right? <laughs> wow. The and, person and prostituting like, his sister who's challenged yeah, and so exactly. forth. Yeah. And, it's the nihilism. So, 
Yeah, so Kareem was faced with this and he said, well, he didn't know what kind of changes to make because they didn't say, you know, it's to this or to that. They just said it's nihilist. So he had to sort of figure out what it was that made him think it was nihilist. Right? Yeah. Anyway, I, I think he kind of wears that with the badge of honor to a certain extent, right? But I thought, you know, what if we took the, the idea of nihilism seriously and looked at his films as opposed to just seeing it as a pejorative term or something like that? Now, you know, I think primarily his reason why he gets this nihilist reputation is because he doesn't moralize in his films, right? He does not pass judgment on his characters, um, even though he's the one that's largely created these characters, right? So it's kind of that Nietzschean idea that, you know, with morality, we sort of, we pass um, sentence on existence, right? And and Kareem doesn't want to do that, right? He doesn't want to pass sentence. He doesn't want to make judgment on his characters. So I'm just sort of going to pursue that around and and and. and bring in a couple of psychoanalytic concepts that I think emerge out of Nietzsche, um, specifically, you know, when he calls nihilism the, uh, the uncanny, the uncanniest of all guests that arrive at the door, right, at the, the door of, of uh, European uh, modernism. And so this idea of the uncanny where uh, Harmony Corinne is sort of the uncanny figure within Gen X filmmakers in the United States, right? He just doesn't really... He's, he doesn't really fit there. He's just too strange. You know, there's mm -hmm. there's really, you know, there's nothing, you know, if, if the uncanny is making the familiar stranger, vice versa, I sort of think that he is sort of making film strange in a way, right? Um, and he doesn't fit in with the rest of the generation's filmmakers, precisely because he's not really a filmmaker. He's more of an artist, right? Mm -hmm. And then the mm -hmm. other idea that I was, that I'm going to track through the paper is um, use the, the psychoanalytic concept of sublimation as a reinterpretation or retranslation of Nietzsche's notion of uh, the transvaluation of all values. Could you tell us and, uh, about that in a little bit of detail? Because I think the, the, the students that often listen to the podcast won't be familiar. Okay, well, so, you know, sublimation in psychoanalysis is, I won't get too far into it, but one of it is one of the main methods of Psycho of uh, sublimation is through art, right? So there's an aesthetic way in which we can create something that has value that previously did not hold value, right? And so the idea here is that by doing this, you can open up the world to uh, other things that are now can be seen as valuable that we would have never understood as valuable in Freud's phrase under the pleasure principle, right? And I think this is a good idea when, when you said, Richard, that your students watch Gummo and then they go, why'd you make us watch that? <laughs> and, I, mean, I, I don't know the sign it, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and the number one reason is is because that film is not very pleasurable, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, I, you know, that's, that's sort of Corrine's thing, you know, is to not make a film conform to pre-existing understandings of what's pleasurable in cinema. And I think that's where he starts to transvalue what you can do with cinema. You know, he has this famous quote where he talked to uh, Werner Herzog and Herzog said, well, you know, cinema is a very, is still in its infancy. We don't know what we can do with this thing. And yeah. he sort of takes that to heart and says, okay, well, let's do something that hasn't really been fully done at least at this point, you know? That's why he did the dogma film and shot, he was like one of the first filmmakers to shoot wholly in video. Mm -hmm. And back in the late 90s, when video cameras were pretty horrible, right, at the time. And now he, now he shoots everything on celluloid because video is, is too perfect. Yeah, <laughs> and, and ubiquitous. Imperfect cinema. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think I might be an outlier. I, I found every moment, I've seen Gummo like 20 times. Um, yeah. I, I find it extremely delightful. They're just from, yeah. you know, horrific thing to horrific thing. Um, you know, I... Yeah. I 
had spaghetti in the bathtub subsequently to no, see you it. haven't <laughs> Don't forget the, the piece of bacon taped to the towel. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. favorite show. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, that film especially, you can really see Corinne's um, homage to vaudeville. You know, he's really into vaudeville. Mm-hmm. And so that film almost looks like a bunch of vaudevillian acts, just vignettes, just pieced together loosely around these two characters, you know, that brings everything together, you know. So I think that kind of... Um, you know, there's that mixture of, of reality and fiction in his films where he stages things, but then there's nothing really being staged that's in, on paper. You know, he considers himself an anti-Hitchcockian filmmaker, you know, the last thing he'd ever do is storyboard scenes, right? Mm-hmm. So he just wants to turn on the camera and if accidents happen, then great, because that's what, you know, it's that Ed Wood kind of idea. That's what really happens, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, um, that's what he calls his mistakest aesthetics, right? Let's make mistakes, but let's make that our aesthetics, right? So he wants to always yeah. move away from this Hollywood ideal of, you know, a perfectly scripted narrative, you know, which is why he also skews narratives in his films as well. Awesome. Great. Well, that sounds good. I'm, I'm looking forward to your um, session. Is this your first time at the PCA or... Oh, no, I've been, I was at the one in D.C. two years ago, the last live one we had. Oh, yeah, we were um, too. And I've been... Yeah, I've been doing the PCA on and off since about, since the late 90s, probably almost 25 years gone back. I did one in Philadelphia, I think it was in 96 or 97. That was the first time I've done it. So on and off, I've been doing it for, yeah, about over 20 years. Yeah, nice. This is the first, okay. Oh, I said we were in DC too, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, That was a great conference. It really was. Yeah, I mean, what's better than DC in April? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. I used to live in DC, that's why I say that. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you very much for um, talking to us, and um, hopefully, one of these years our, our paths will cross at at the conference, and uh, be nice to see you in person. Okay, thank you for us. Right. Thanks. Take care. Okay, Rach, what are we liking this week? Well, we finally started giving Schitt's Creek a real look. <laughs> so, like, we... I, I, let, let, let me interrupt you before you say any more about it. You just said giving shits. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, we're, we're giving a Schitt's Creek a look. Uh, yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Uh, so, Four-year-old so. me occasionally emerges and sometimes the mic's on. Yeah. Um, it's... We, uh... I mean, I'm probably everybody that's listening to this has already seen it and knows that it's pretty fun and delightful. But I watched a couple of episodes and I just wasn't taken with it. I don't know if it, I just wasn't in the mood for camp, like over the top campiness. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is a pre-pandemic, so a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really should have. Uh, this was a great pandemic show to watch. I think it, early in the pandemic, it would have been a source of real joy. I, mm-hmm. I think uh, so. I really like it. Yeah, we could have avoided. 10 weeks of British baking or something. Oh, no. Or maybe that, that would have defined the pandemic, right? Sits Creek and the, Br- the British, British baking, baking show. show. Yeah. Um, then there's been Handmaid's Tale season four. Yeah, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, uh, without um, spoiling anything, stuff that seems to happen between the two books. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're making it up, right? It's They're, they're off the source material. Mm-hmm. Although Margaret Atwood is one of the consultants, so maybe she's supervising the story arc, you mm-hmm. know, the same way that George 
R R R R R R. I think there's eleven R's. Martin <laughs> did with Game of Thrones, but it's great. I mean, it just it has the right feel. It, it seems like the perfect transition. Yeah, and so forth. We watched Hemingway, which I, is that was on PBS, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was intense. <laughs> I, that's a. Um... Yeah, I was having a, a couple of um, drinks during it, and. Um, you know, instantly felt bad about myself. Just, <laughs> you know, again, not, drink not to spoil it, but everybody knows the, the story. <laughs> yeah, um, he, he he was an imbiber. So yeah, fantastic um, um, documentary. Um, always yeah, Ken, Ken Burns. Burns. Yeah, I was sitting here going, oh, oh. can I think of the name Ken yeah, Burns? Yeah, yeah, Ken, Ken it's Burns. It's a Ken Burns documentary, which I always love. Yeah, and there's never any drop-off. Every single one yep. um, is, is just great. Yeah. Uh, Mayor of Easttown. Yeah, Mayor of Easttown's been good. We're we're halfway through that. Um, I think it's eight, maybe seven. But as is everybody, that's we're watching them mm-hmm. um, uncannily for us as they come out. Um, Kate Winslet, really good. Potentially career-defining performance, yeah. given some of her other roles. Oh, Titanic that, that will could all, always define her career. That's what I was but... going to say. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean that's that's the big one because it. Yeah. billion people saw it yeah. um but this is she's better in this right this, yeah this is yeah of course her... it's a really just raw performance really good yeah um and we've managed to watch some movies right mm-hmm. so something that we just weren't able to do for a very long time because not many that seemed interesting came out and mm-hmm. and so forth so um death of me was pretty fun um block island sound uh also pretty fun I'm going to say things heard and seen, excellent. Um, mm-hmm. Just a, a fantastic um, movie, despite the fact that I fell asleep right at the end of it. But that was, um, I think, a Hemingway issue on my part more than <laughs> than anything else. Um, but yeah, really, really great. Lots of cool philosophical content. Right? We could do an episode on it. Great, great metaphysics and so forth. So, um, yeah, it's been a, a good few weeks um, for, for viewing. Yeah, I think we've been more apt to, like, go back to regular pop culture consumption habits. For a while there, it was like, just like, I don't want to watch any movies. I just want to watch light, non- you know, nonsense. Mm-hmm. But now we're actually back to... Yeah, I mean, I think that explains the baking thing, even though that was an excellent show. Um there's something to be said for the fact that we were just escaping from all the depressing stuff yeah. for you know an hour or so at the end of the day. Yeah. Okay, that's a wrap. Episode 53 is in the can. And much gratitude to our guests for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, um, Ed and Jennifer, for for being on. Um, Nice to have you here. Um, Okay, we hope you're enjoying our podcast. And if you are, um, then go to our webpage, I think they're farfan.com, and um, you can click on the link that says donate and become uh, a Patreon, a patron through Patreon. (laughs) So um, there's virtually no... Um, limit to the amount of money you can donate as far as we're concerned. And everybody who donates um, becomes uh, what we'll now call a a gold level um, Patreon, which 
and <laughs> titles you to literally nothing. Do you get uh, to be, I've got the giggles here, sorry, but do you become a Patreon or, or you're a patron um, at Patreon? Well, yeah, I think because it's Patreon, you become a patron. <laughs> it, it's better to be a Patreon than a patron. Anyone can be a patron, right? I mean, all, to be a patron, all you have to do is be patronizing. But to be a Patreon, you actually have to go to IThinkTheirFarFan.com, click on the link that says donate, <laughs> and then give um, 100% of your extra money. This is a real opportunity here, folks. This is your one and only chance to become a Patreon. Yeah, this is the only week that we're accepting donations this week. Every other week, we're accepting donations in those weeks. <laughs> All right. So thanks for joining us. We'll, we'll see you next week with more from the PCA.